Welcome to Word is Truth. This is Doug Presley. It is 11-13-2022, and we're continuing where we left off with the thought of the week and prayer. And here we have the thought of the week. And this title phrase is taken from Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. Who we are God's workmanship. When we think about God's workmanship, this says that we are the product of God's, God's work. However, we are not just the product of God's work. We are his magnum opus. This is the greatest work he ever performed. The Father is proud of the work he planned and uses it to show forth his own character as its creator. He removed every tint of sin and evil from us, and we will stand, quote, holy and blameless in his sight, unquote, taken from Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. When we look at ourselves, we cannot see how these glorious words apply to us. We should never focus on our limitations, but our focus should be on the work of God. Quote, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it out onto the day onto completion until the day of Jesus, Christ Jesus. And that's from Philippians chapter one, verse six. The work in us will not be carried to completion by our work, but by the work of God in us. We can have confidence in his work by faith. Looking away from ourselves to the Father's plan allows that plan to come into focus. We can trust in the statements made of us and begin to walk and see ourselves just as the Father does. God has done something marvelous for us. Since we are God's workmanship, we must be here for a very special purpose. We are designed to be an extension of God's presence and his purposes. We are equipped by God to do what he called us to do. All the assets we have been blessed with in this age are given with our specific purpose in mind. While we are here on the battlefield, we are perfectly equipped to do God's will. The victorious path before us has already been trod by our Lord Jesus Christ. We are not here to make our own way, but to walk by faith in his steps. And that's taken from First John chapter 2, verse 6. And that was the thought of the week, and I'd like to offer some commentary on that. Now, very often we have talked about in the past that once you are saved, you are absolutely saved. And that, um, you know, there is no condition. There is no standard for your salvation. It is all God's work, and it's simply by our choice. And believe and place our trust in Jesus Christ for our soul salvation, that that is complete. We don't have to do anything to earn it. In fact, earning it would would be similar to um, refusing a gift that was freely given to us. So not just is his spirit given to us and that salvation is secure, but all of the work that is required, all of the work that is required was required for salvation and will be um, uh, and, um, done for us is the work of God on our behalf. He is the complete source 
not only for the assurance of our salvation, but for our walk in Christ. And we have but a choice to make from our free will and our volition, and that is to trust him and to put our faith in him, turn away from ourselves, as the thought of the week says. And I'd like to draw attention to Second Corinthians um, chapter 4, in the, starting in verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. But we have been given, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all surpassing power is from God and not from ourselves. So that is the thought of the week in my commentary. Amen. We have everything we need done for us by God. Amen. Amen. And now Dave will give us the prayer. All right, thanks, boys. Do anyone have any special prayer requests? Yes, uh, Dave, uh, I'd like to pray for my niece, Christina, who just uh, underwent some uh, surgery. She's doing a lot better, but I'd like to continue to lift her up in prayer, her and her family, uh, Gail and Kenny. And also, I'd like to uh, pray for my brother, Michael, uh, and his church, the word of truth, and continue to lift them up in prayer. Thank you. I just thought we have to have uh, able to bow your heads. Father, we're so grateful, Lord, for the day you've given us, Father. We pray for those who are needing, Father. Father, we pray for the church, word is truth, and word is truth, church, Father, that you will protect us, Father. Father, we also ask you, and we ask you through prayer, Father, that you allow the Spirit to teach us, Father, of your ministry, Father. Give it to us, instructed by the fact that teacher, Father. Father, we ask you, Lord, to look over those who are in need. Father, we also want to bless those who serve, Father. And we like to give thanks and honor, Heavenly Father, to your Son, Father, who paved the way for our future, Father, and for our eternal salvation. Father, we ask you, Lord, to comfort us while we are in the devil's world, Father, and that you are God as Father, in truth and in need, Father. We ask you in Christ's name. Amen. 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 Thank you both. Um, and we are, as you know, we are studying in John chapter 17. We are at a review period. And we are... Um, we are just uh, in verse verses six through nine, but and we're, we're going to pick up there. We're not going to take too much time in this intro because we have a lot to cover. So I'll just begin with the notes. You should have notes. As we have come to the end of this discourse, we have taken time to investigate the words of our Lord. What I find most interesting is this discourse covers a period where we have a dispensational change. Jesus is busy preparing the disciples for this new age. He did not tell everything there was to tell. He said, quote, I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear, unquote. That's from John 16, 12. Well, Pentecost came, and we did have major change, just as Jesus prophesied. There were 
many classic verses, and we got a chance to see them up close and personal. More importantly, my prayer is that we were true to the text, in context, and correctly handled the word of truth. Let us look at some of the highlights we discussed in chapter 17. So this is where we started uh, last week. We started talking about uh, John 17, 1 through 3, <clears throat> and we got through 4, through 4 and 5, verses 4 and 5. Uh, all of that took some time because verse, I would say verses 4 and 5 were detailed. We had a lot of thought there, but uh, we did progress on to 6 through 9. And I'll just read 6 through 9, because that's where we still are in the midst of that. We just are at the end of 6 through 9. But 6 says, uh, I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but, I, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. So that's where we, we um, kind of left off last time. We're going to pick up right where we left off, because there's a lot of detail here, and I just want to make sure we use our time wisely. So we were at point number seven in John, the outline of John 17, 6 through 9. Point number seven was the process of our calling. And some of the things that happened, because we did detail how the disciples were called. We, we noticed that it wasn't a random call. God didn't just say, well, the first 12 disciples who show up are the ones who are going to be the foundation. No, no, no. He, the Father told Christ which disciples that he wanted. So when Christ had a lot of disciples gathered around him, it wasn't just the 12. He picked those 12 out of that number of disciples that were there. And he called them by name. And this led us to the thought that God calls us all by name. He knows us. It's not a random, well, whoever in this age happens to believe in Christ, well, they'll be in the church. No, no, no. God knows that everybody he gives life to in this age, that he intends to be in this age, and that he knows that they are going to be believers in Christ, but they were, their salvation will be augmented by the very issues <clears throat> and adornments of the church. So that is the thought. So point number seven is the process of our calling. We're going to talk about some of the ways, or, well, this is the way that God actually brings us into existence. Because he knew us before the universe was created. So the Father foreknew us is point A. And that's Romans 8, 29. Of course, my throat is tickling all of a sudden. <coughs> Excuse me. Just as we get started. Romans 8, 29. The Father foreknew us. 
So foreknowledge is not just about omniscience, because the Father knows everything. There is the Father's, I mean, the knowledge of God as far as time is concerned. Every detail, every thought, every motive, every decision, every action, every reaction <laughs> to what happens in time, God knows it completely. He, know, he, he knows it before he even put this uh, whole thing into motion, this creation. He, he knows it before he even pulled the trigger on creation. So what foreknowledge is, is God knowing the players that would he would use to help to uh, bring about his objective. And that is, the foreknowledge represents those who are actually in the plan, who are involved in the plan. God foreknowledge is specific information just for them. And this is what we have in Romans 8.29. For those he foreknew, he also predestined. Right? If you go to Romans 8.29, that's what the verse says. To be conformed to the many brothers and sisters, to be conformed to the image of his son. So the foreknowledge is not just uh, his omniscience. It is specifically those that God had planned to utilize as part of to, to assist him in the plan. So we or to be a part of the plan, or, or let's put it that way. So predestination is the provision for those people right, that God had foreknown from eternity past. This is before time began. All of these words, foreknowledge, predestination, called, all the things that we're talking about here, are things that happened before the universe was created. Some people would say, how in the world can you talk about things before the universe was created? You wasn't there. How, how can you know that? We know that because God, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Truth, has given us this information and made it available so we understand the meaning of what God has told us here. So this foreknowledge that Paul is talking about, it's not foreknow we're not foreknown about Israel because God foreknew them as well at that time. He knew Israel before he created, because the whole purpose of God, his eternal purpose is to bring many sons into glory. And everything that happens, even creation, is a component part of God bringing many sons into glory, even creation. So that would mean the creation of uh, the universe, angels, man, uh, the restoration of the earth, and man, and and all of Israel. Was they were the nation Israel created between from a Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. All of that, God foreknew in terms of the plan, that, or we should say, our component parts. Israel is said to be foreknown. They play a role in the plan of God bringing many sons into glory. So, so then it says, uh, so this is the point, the point A, the Father foreknew us. I'm just trying to help us understand what foreknowledge is and what is the difference between foreknowledge and omniscience. Point B, the Father predestined us. That means he marked us out of our destiny and our purpose. God, they are within 
certain parameters, right? So God didn't just say, I'm predestining you to be whatever you want, be all you can be, like what the army says. But no, we are predestined for a specific purpose, right? And that predestination is further defined in Romans 8.29 as to be conformed to the image of his son. So we are taken out of Adam and we are united to the person of Christ. Well, we should know that Christ is the last Adam. So we are taken out of this earthly Adam made from the dust of the ground and we are united or now uh, in the last Adam who is the man from heaven, says 1 Corinthians 15, 45 through 49. So this, <clears throat> this is predestination. Right? God, we are specifically destined to be uh, in this age where God is calling out those many sons in the glory. Or we could also say the new creation. We are part of the new creation. Well, what's the new creation? 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If anyone is in Christ... Any man be in Christ, he is a new creation, never before seen. You might have seen the creation of the first Adam. You might have. You, I'm sure you have. But you have not seen anything like the new creation. Well, you, you've seen us, but now we need to underst you to understand what we are like, who we are in this world. What, that new, what the dynamics of the new creation are. What is the destiny of the new creation? Well, a lot of questions we could ask about who we are in Christ. Okay, so that's and then point C. The Father selected us to be born in this age where the baptism of the Spirit was revealed. So all of this had to happen to get you in the shoes you are now. Where you are. Boots on the ground right now. Father selected us. So the only way that we could be here is the Father has to give us life. Isaiah 45 verse 2 says that God the Father personally gives the spark of life to everyone that comes in the world. It's not like, uh, you know, God lit a candle and gave it to Adam and then Adam and Eve give that spark of life to this and then they give this spark. No, in every case where a child is born into this world, God gives human life to that, per to that person. So that would also say that God is in charge of when we show up in, on the earth's scene, on the earth's stage. So he determines that I came about, I'm not even going to tell you what my birth year is, doesn't matter, but he determines that I would come to be to life because he has to create my life. I didn't exist. He knew I would exist and he chose me. But he said, I want Doug to be born at this particular time under this dispensation where I'm calling out those many sons in the glory because I chose him to be in Christ before the creation of the world, says Ephesians 1, 4. So point... Uh, C, that's, that was point C, the Father selected us to be born, right? And where this baptism of the Spirit puts us in that place. And point D, the Father knew us by name since we were, we are specifically chosen. He knows us by name. Just imagine that. You think 
you know, if you think about this, the president know you by name? If we think about somebody who's high in office, right, has lots of power, do, do they know you? I don't even know if we want those people to know us, but, but the answer would probably be no. President doesn't know you. President doesn't know me by name. But I can tell you what, God knows you by name. God is the highest authority in the universe. And not only did he, does he know you by name, but he did certain things before the universe was created so that you would be born at this particular time in human history. So he specifically chose you. It's not random. It's specific. Right? That's the point. Just like he did the disciples. He didn't say, if there are any Peters in the, in the uh, crowd of disciples here, uh, the first one that steps forward, if, are there any Johns? Are there any Matthews? He knew exactly which persons those names represented. It's, the name identifies the person. And so God knows your person. That's the point of him knowing your name. Point E in our notes. In time, he gave us life. But he gave us, he didn't give us life in Christ. He gave us life in Adam. <clears throat> so that would mean whatever properties uh, that were a part of Adam and his fallen uh, nature would be a part of who we are because we are like him. He is the federal head. So Ad, he gave us life in Adam, but it was in this mystery age. And that's Ephesians 3, 2, where, where Paul says, Surely you have heard of the administration of grace, which was given to me for you. Well, he's, the administration of grace is the dispensation of grace that he's talking about. Surely you have heard of it. Well, that's when, in this dispensation, he's given us life. But he's given it in Adam. The moment we believe in Christ is where we are also, not only are we saved eternally, permanently, but we are baptized into the body of Christ as well. That doesn't happen for people in every age, but in this age, that's where God gave you life in, and he gave it to you in Adam, but now you are in Christ. So that's what happens in this age. Point F, we keep, we're going to keep moving. And you were also included in Christ. when you. And this is where it actually says how it happened. Right? This is the how of it. And this is a quote from Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. And you were also included in Christ when you heard the message of truth. That's the gospel of your salvation. If, just in case you didn't know what the message of truth was, it's the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. So this is <clears throat> part of the Spirit's ministries that are given to us in this age is the sealing ministry of the Spirit. So here, he is telling us that that happened when we believed. When we believed. So when we believe, not only are we baptized, it doesn't go into the baptism of the Spirit here, but he's dealing with another aspect of it. We were sealed the moment we believed in Christ. And what does the sealing represent? The seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance 
until the redemption of those who are God's possession. Notice, to the praise of his glory. It guarantees our inheritance. Now, I knew I used to, when, early on, when I used to look at this verse, I said, this is direct proof that we have eternal security. You know, that's true by application. But, by, but this verse is not talking about eternal security. It's talking about the guarantee of our inheritance. That's what it's referring to. So God is not just saying, yeah, you have salvation. I guarantee it. He's saying, you are in the church. You are in this new creation. You were foreknown and predestined and adopted and all that. All of that was you. I did this before time began. I brought you forward. You're part of this in this unique age. That's what this is referring to. You have an inheritance in Christ. So uh, that, that is an important verse. So that's 17, 6 through 9. We got to keep moving. There's a lot more detail that we came up with, and you all have the notes, and it's completed. If you don't have the notes, please let someone know. You can get the completed notes from John chapter 14 all the way through 17, including this review. So John 17, 10 through 4. Let's read it first. Uh, John 7, all I have is yours, and all you have is mine, and glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father. Protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by the name you gave me. None of them has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that the scripture would be fulfilled. I have given them your word. Uh, wait a minute. I am coming to you now and I say these things while I am still in the world that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word and the world has hated them for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. That's verse 14. So, large section we have here. <clears throat> Let's talk about it. The first thought is about mutual possession. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine. Notice that <clears throat> that is about, that's speaking of mutual possession. And I said here in our first point, hmm, the Christian way of life. That is the dynamic of the spiritual life that the church has. That is not something that Israel had or Gentiles had prior to Israel or even during the nation's reign. This is the Christian way of life. If I were to ask, what's a great verse to depict that? Uh, my first thought would be John chapter 14, verse 19. Before long, the world will see me, will not see me anymore. But you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. And there, there is a good description of what the Christian way of life is. Christian way of life is not you. Because remember, you died. right? When you, you died when you were united to the person of Christ. And you were united to him in his death burial, and then resurrection. So you're not 
united to the 12 year old boy christ jesus jesus christ you're united to christ in his death his departure from this world and then his burial which is your departure from this world and your separation from it and the resurrection you are now united with the person of christ in the glorious resurrection life that he has that's the Christian way of life. That's what God wants to, uh, that Christ wants to live within you in this world, <clears throat> the resurrection life. So, so that is a good way to say, well, what is the Christian way of life like? It is the life where Christ lives in you. So like Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, not I, but Christ lives in me. Life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's Galatians 2.20. So some points on this mutual possession. Point A, it was the spiritual life of Christ and the Father. Christ is letting you know what was going on inside of him. He's basically saying, here, here's what's happening inside of me. This is what will be happening inside of you. This is the spiritual life of the church. If we keep reading from John 17, once we get to 19 and 20 and further, you'll see that. Point B, it is the spiritual life of everyone in the church. Not some. So if we were to go back to John 17, we, we will also realize this is the case, <clears throat> and where he says, verse 20, my prayer is not for them, that's the disciples alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. Well, what, what's going to distinguish those people? That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. Because that has to do with the baptism of the Spirit. That's how we get to be in Christ, and Christ gets to be in us, and the Father, and so forth. The same relationship that Christ had, is now a part of the basic issue of the church. So everybody in the church has it. Not some people, not the most spiritual people. Everybody in the church have this going on. However, what we must say about mutual possession, it has two aspects to it. And that goes to point C. It is positional, but it is also functional. The function of it is experiential right so we can <clears throat> we know christ is in us and and we are in christ but it doesn't mean it's experiential yet so positionally yes christ is in you but experientially is it like what paul said i died i recognize this i'm dead i'm not living my life it's christ's life that's living maybe, maybe that hasn't happened for you but the potential of it is that and so positionally, we have that, but we can actually walk in that as we grow and allow. So like I said, set your mind on things above, not on things of this earth, uh, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Well, that's the glorified life of Christ, right? So let's talk about it. Let's go. Let's focus our attention on that because we are not here. Christ then takes up the residence of our body. He literally manifests and is able to live the life that we have here on earth. <clears throat> that was point C. Point number two in our notes, glory 
comes to Christ through us. And this is still in verse 10, and wow, I think it took three swipes at this, three or four swipes, for us to finally get the full understanding of verse 10 uh, when we went through it. <clears throat> there is literally no way we're going to cover four hours of time that we spent trying to dissect this verse. But we'll just go through some of the points of interest here that I have laid out. So, glory has come to Christ through us. That's what he says at the end of verse 10. Wow. You mean to tell me we have something to do with the glory that Christ said that he wanted the Father to give him before the world began. So, we have something to do with that. That's what that is to say. This is the magnum opus of this plan. That's what we have to say. But that, if all human history was 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 brought forward in the way it has been brought forward, so that God could bring many sons into glory. That is the pinnacle of God's eternal purpose, which we see in Ephesians three eleven. So so this this thought is huge so let's the point a this speaks of the confidence and the boldness he has in the plan for christ to say that in prayer the glory has come to me through them do we dare speak of the glory we have through him yes we do we're going to get to those verses in John 17, 22, where he says, I have given them the glory that you gave me. Well, this is the glory they spoke about before the universe was created. And Christ is saying, I'm giving it to them. I'm, I'm going to share it with them. That they may be one as we are one. In other words, we're talking about the people in the church. The new creation. These are the dynamics that are part of the new creation of Christ, the, the last Adam. Point B, the impact of the glory revealed in us is universal. When I say the impact is universal, right? Well, when God eventually allows the world to see these sons that he has created, what he has been working on before the universe was created. It is universal. It will impact all creation. That's what God says. He says, the children of God, let's read this universal impact. This is Romans 8, 8 through 18 through 21. Let's pull that forward. <clears throat> 18 through 21 says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Well, that's going to be when he comes, right? The second coming. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation will itself be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in pains of child as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. 
Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. I read a little further, but that's universal impact. We're not just saying, yeah, well, he, he will affect what's going to happen on this earth. He's saying the whole creation groans under the curse and waiting to be liberated from its bondage to decay into the glorious freedom of the children of God. That's verse 21. The glory of the children of God. Christ says, I have shared my glory with them. So when Christ comes back to this world, uh I did hear some background noise, but when Christ comes back to this world, it won't just be the glory of who he is, but it will be in the glory of also the children God has given him, that the part of the new creation and the glory is going to be accentuated and through the church as well, not just the person of Christ who's coming back, but we are coming back with him in all the glory that uh, the glory of God, we should say. So that that is universal impact. Point C: Christ receive receiving glory depends on the church. We can draw that conclusion. It depends. When Christ says that in uh, John seventeen ten, uh, that is the way Christ sees it. I see it the same way. He says, um, verse seventeen ten. Hold on, let me read it again. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine. And glory has come to me through them. Through them. So if it wasn't through us, he wouldn't have been able to get this glory. He would not have been able to complete or finish the work that the Father had planned for him to do. So it is this glory that is dependent upon the church. Because if that's the Father's eternal purpose, that he bring many sons into glory, that is us, the church, then if we are not brought forward, if God does not get what he wanted, then Christ would not get what he wanted either because he didn't finish the work. However, it is not through any achievement by us, I must point out. When I say the church, I don't mean that God is waiting for you to do something. All you are is someone who he has called to be in the church, right? You, you're part of the building material, if we were to say that, that word, use that metaphor. It is all sovereign grace. That's Ephesians 1, 4 through 6, where he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight and love. He, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons and, and so forth. If you read that, nothing there is about what we do. It is all what God has sovereignly chosen by grace. So that, that, is, that is what it's about. It's not what we achieve. And the work of Christ, right? That obviously, that is what the work is. It is not our achievement. It is Christ's achievement. That's how we can look at that. Point three. And I notice we're moving forward. I know it doesn't seem like it, but we are moving forward. Divine protection included in the prayer is included in the prayer. 
it's why why is divine protection included in this prayer christ just says i'm not going to be in the world any longer uh you know i want you to protect them by the power of your name so this is what i'm saying christ has included that so what is that to say is it to say we're in dangerous territory yeah it does say that we are in dangerous territory this world but we are more important than we know this is why he is telling, saying that it's going to protect them by the power of your name. What he's really also saying is, yes, yes, the world is dangerous. Yes, this is terrible times. Yes, in this world, you will have trouble. But what God, what Jesus is saying to the Father, or praying to the Father in this, is to say that we're important. This is your highest priority. Protect them by the power of your name. When he says that, he's saying... Nothing should will stop your plan for moving forward and calling out these many sons. So protect them by the power of your name. Point, that was point three. Point four, I will remain in the world no longer. Christ is departing. He's physically leaving, but he is here in us. Right? But the world will not see Christ until... We, just like we spoke about in Romans 8, he makes his appearance. And when he appears, then we will also appear with him in glory, says Colossians. So, so that is when he will come physically back to this earth in all of his glory. And that includes the glory of the new creation. So uh, he says, I will remain in the world no longer. Christ is departing, but he is here in us, as we already read in John 14, 19. And then you can also read that in 20 and 1720 as well. Uh, point number four, uh, five rather, protect them by the power of your name. The power of your name. And that's a reference, as I said, to the highest authority and purpose. So the name, and, and that goes to point number six, the name you gave me so that they will be one as we are one. So this name, the power of the Father's name is the same name that he gave Christ. The power of the Father's name is not about the Father giving you the name of the Father. The power of the Father's name is the power of the Father's purpose. Because everything we learn about the Father is not just, wow, there is a Father, you know. He's out there. And his name? Father. That's not it. It's about the purpose of the Father. What he brings to the table. What does he bring to the table? His eternal purpose. And that is to bring many sons into glory. And so what is the name he gave Christ? Son. So if we look at that name Son, what does that represent? Let's, let's keep going. Because I have this in the notes and I want to get ahead of myself here. So point, that's point number six. The name you gave me so that they may be one as they are one. There are some points there. So the first point is A. It's the highest authority and purpose. It was given to Christ. And we call that Roman-style adoption. This is not just um, Christ. The Father says, I'm giving you this name, Son. Right? The name actually is Son, S-O-N. And why, why is he giving him the name Son? It's because 
the sun represents adoption. The sun represents this Roman-style ceremony where there is the greatest transfer of wealth and power. It was given, this power was transferred. You know how we have the transfer of power in the United States, or they tried to transfer power. There's still, there's still some who don't think the power was transferred. But in, in any case, the way we transfer power from one president to another is very defined, right? They have it in our laws and our system of government and how it's supposed to, one president leaves, another president takes over. Well, in the same way in the Roman Empire, and when, when these emperors, these great emperors, trans, were, were, they were headed off, maybe because they were old, and they were going to transfer their wealth and power to, their, to the next person, that person was called the adoptee or the son. So Paul picks that analogy up and explains it to us as how God brings us on the scene as the new creation. And what is the title Christ was given? Son. In other words, all, like Christ says, all that belongs to the Father is mine. All that I have is his. And glory has come to me through them. And he says, I'm not going to remain in the world any longer, but protect them by the power of your name. Well, what's the power of your name? He's talking about the Father's eternal purpose. That name you gave me. Well, well, what's the name? How has it happened? That everything was transferred from the Father to Christ? It is through that term, Son. Son. We are adopted in that manner. Point B. This is 6B, by the way. Since Christ's glory depends on us, that is his body, and the Father's glory depends on Christ, <clears throat> then the entire eternal purpose depends on the church's success. Obviously, we are God's highest priority. A bunch of if-then statements here to help us understand the progression of how this all works. Right? All of this is God's highest priority right now is to bring the churches, to bring those many sons into glory. That's the church's success. doesn't have to do with us, per se, it is God's sovereign choice to bring those many sons into glory. There are rewards that we can earn in this life. If we suffer with him, we will also receive glory with Christ, the glory that Christ received, but there is more, and it's the sovereign choice of God that is where um, the church's success rests upon. Obviously, we are God's highest priority. Point C, one as we are one. There is no mistake about who are the recipients here. And that all has to do with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's what B-O-S means, baptism of the Holy Spirit. So when, it's, when we see language one as we are one, and them and us, and us and them, and that's language that uh, is the result of the baptism of the Spirit. It didn't say that the disciples were that now. It says when the Spirit comes, that's what would happen. That's what they would be, one as we are one. 
well, as results of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Point number seven. I protected them. When I was here, Christ says, I protected them and kept them safe. And you know, they did not know it. They didn't realize the, the depth and the importance of <clears throat> all Christ had a certain path he was following. He says, let's go. The disciples would question him. Well, why are you going over here? Why are you going? Christ said, "Just follow me. You, 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 you don't need to know everything at this point. Just follow me." And sometimes they would follow him, grumbling and begrudgingly, and and saying, "Man, I don't like the time with Lazarus. But he, now he wants to go back there. They tried to kill him there. Doesn't he know?" Right? Well, Christ was walking a path that the Father had laid out for him. They didn't realize it. Christ was keeping them safe. And it was more than they understood. And that's how we have to realize that God is protecting us. Listen, if he protected Job with a hedge, he said, of angels all around him, Satan said he couldn't even get to Job because God had such protection over his life. Job didn't know it. He didn't realize that. And so we don't realize the divine protection over our lives. Everything that happens to us, God is in control of it. We are God's highest priority. Does he know you? Absolutely. He knows you by name. Point eight. Jesus is departing, but we are in enemy territory. So we should know that. We should know not only are Jesus is gone, yes, but we are here. And we should know that the world's going to hate us. Uh, those who persecuted Jesus, they will persecute us. Those who think they are doing God's service would seek to kill us even. And we, so we are in this world. It is evil. It is bad. <coughs> it is fallen. And we are, as I said, we are in enemy territory. I like the way Paul characterizes it in Ephesians 6. He says, we, for we wrestle, wrestle not against flesh, flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness and high places. This is all in Ephesians 6. So put on the full armor of God while you're here. On guard, basically, you have to be uh, on your guard because you're living in a fallen world. Right? Don't look at this. Don't, don't settle back into your your lawn chair and think that, oh, everything is just, oh, you know, no problem. In this world, you're going to have trouble. Be, expect it. Know it. All who live godly in Christ Jesus, in other words, who live their spiritual lives out, will be persecuted, says the Apostle Paul. So point number <clears throat> nine, he leaves us his joy. Uh, so he says, my joy Jesus, this is point A, my, uh, Jesus derived joy from his execution of the Father's plan. If we love him like he loved the Father, his joy can be in us. That's John 15, 10 and 11. And that is the case. We find that joy does not come when things are just going great. <clears throat> uh, joy comes when we endure suffering. But one thing we know, as we're enduring that suffering, we're not just going through suffering, you know, for the sake of suffering. 
we know we're doing the will of God. We know we're walking in the will of God. When that's happening, even though there is suffering as a result of it, we can have joy. God gives us the assurance, the confidence. And not only that, but there is an exuberance of the Spirit within us that gives us this, this pause of joy where God has flooded our soul with the knowledge and the wisdom that we are walking according to his will. So, like Christ said it this way, for the joy set before him, he despised the cross, endured its shame and, and its scorn. He understood, he went through that knowing that he was doing God's will. That even though that was tremendous suffering that he had to go through, he knows it's God's will for his life. That's where we know that we are now in this particular age that God has called us forth. How, did he, how do we know that? He demonstrated it through signs, wonders, and miracles. That this was the direction that he was going in. That he did exactly what... He said, Jesus laid out the introduction, and so it was. Pentecost came, the new dispensation dawned, and here we are today talking about it. So point B, joy then is a calm, resolute cheerfulness derived from our steadfast love. And love is our commitment and devotion for the Father's plan. And our execution of its commands. That's John 14 and 15, where Jesus says, if you love me, you will you will do what I command, right? And this is, he says, I I'm going to show you what it's like. I love the Father, and I do exactly as the Father has commanded me. So point C <clears throat> in our notes, love and joy give balance to our lives, just like learning to walk. So this is what one of the things we discovered. So joy is needed. We sh this is part of the spiritual life that we should recognize as a part of something that it gives us balance, right? Because we are not all about suffering and the rigors of living in a world that hates us and is against us, is not for us. But we that is balanced out by God giving us that calm, resolute cheerfulness. And that comes as a result of the steadfastness of love and commitment that we have. So I say, given it an analogy, it's just like learning to walk. On the one hand, we, uh, we press forward with the left leg, but then we balance that with the right, which is the joy, knowing that joy. So then we continue, that fuels our devotion to, to take another step and then we are continuing to be bolstered by that joy. So that gives us the balance of being able to walk in this life. Point D, my joy, Christ says, instead of being humiliated and shamed and paralyzed in fear, Christ said, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. That's Hebrews 12, 2. There, that is given to us. Christ says, I'm leaving you my joy. 
we ought to know the same resolute attitude that he had and that we, we are not to have para, be paralyzed in fear, but love should overcome that fear. Continuing, continuing, I have given them your word. This is point number 10. I have given them your word. So uh, <clears throat> when Christ says this, uh, this is still within the realm of John 17, 10 through 14. This is not verse 10, but it is just point 10. I've given them your word. And the first point there to think about is it's not the Mosaic law. Uh, that which was hid in God. This is Ephesians 3, 8 through 11. So the word that was given to us and revealed to us is the mystery that was hidden from Israel. They didn't have this word. So as we said earlier or last week, the disciples were theologically challenged. That is to say that the disciples were facing a dilemma. When God changed dispensations, he had a new purpose in mind. And it was a hidden dispensation. So all of this information, the disciples said, whoa, wait a minute, are you sure? You know, and in the first century church, there was a lot of people who were not sure that this was the direction of the church or should be the direction of the church. So they questioned it. In fact, there were people who took sides and said, no, uh, we got to be keeping the Mosaic law. I don't know where you're getting this thought from, but no, for what God has shown us over the 1,400 years of our existence says we should continue on this path. But no, God did reveal it by power, by signs, wonders, and miracles. He attested. He first did them through Jesus Christ and shook up the world with all those miracles. And then the apostles... But all of this is not just, you know, where people today are blown away because miracles happened. But they are neglecting the fact that God is showing clear direction from those miracles. It's not just, hey, let me wow you like a magician would. Like, watch me pull a rabbit out of my hat. He's saying, look, I am investing in this direction. It's just like a red light that goes green and says, go, you're supposed to go now. The cars will be blowing if you don't. And this, this is the thought. God is saying, this is the direction. This is how we know we're walking in the truth is that we're following what God has given us through those signs, wonders, and various miracles performed by the Holy Spirit. So, so it's not the Mosaic Law, although the church is enamored with Mosaic law. They should be enamored with the new age information that was hidden and now is revealed, you would think, right? But no, they are somehow still looking at the Mosaic law as the way of life for us. Wrong. Point B, this will include the rest of the story. This is when Christ says, I have given them your word. It, look, if you read John 16, 12 through 15, you will see, Jesus says, I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. 
So what Jesus gave us was just the introductions, like the introduction of a book. You read it and you think you know it all? No, there's much more to tell you, more than you can now bear. And that's, that's the, the information when Christ says, I have given them your word. All of that is to come. Christ continues to teach far beyond what he did there before the Pentecost came. He continued to teach at Pentecost and well into the church age, he continued to lay out what his will was for the church. So point 11 says the world has hated them because we are not of the world. Well, we are not like them. We are the new creation. And not only are we the new creation, we're of the new ruler of this world. So that would mean the previous ruler of this world, Satan, will certainly hate us and will marshal everything he can to throw at us, to cause us to be unbalanced, uh, unstable, that people will look at us as crazy and off our rocker and we don't know what we're talking about. We're all this, all confusion and this and that. Satan is out there. He was the enemy of God. He is now the enemy of the church. So, and the world is his to wield. So that's point 11. Point 12, the world, uh, I'm sorry, the word given us is out of this world. So when he says, I have given them your word, it's out of this world, really. And that's 1 Corinthians 2, 9 through 13. We could read that. I should, not that we haven't read it, but I'd like to, to turn to that. 1 Corinthians 2, 9 through 13 says, However, as it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him. These are the things God has revealed to us by his spirit. Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who, um, who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. What we have received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. And this is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught us by the spirit, explaining spiritual realities with spirit-taught words. So that is our heritage. Not only is it that we live in, we're living in this time that was not prophesied, this time where the prophecy clock has stopped, but the information that we have is out of this world. It is what eye has not seen, ear has not heard, but God has revealed it to us by his spirit. Point 13, and we're going to have to close after this. They are not of the world. And the baptism of the spirit ensures that. We are no longer part of this world. We are now in Christ. Right now, we are not part. Of, by the fact that God has taken us out of Adam and united us to the person of Christ, we are now part of this new creation, this new purpose, revealed eternal purpose of God. 
So this looks like a <clears throat> good place to pause and hopefully we will continue next week. I thought we might get through John 15 through 19, but no rush. We will continue to talk about more of the highlights of what uh, we covered in this uh, chapter where Christ is praying to the Father for the church. And we are that fly on the wall, able to comprehend and examine all that he has said. So next week, we'll continue to talk more about some of these important matters that pertain to us, that are about us, as we continue in John chapter 17. Let's bow our heads as we close. Thank you, Father. We, we are grateful to, to be able to, to know that we are following according to your plan, your purpose. And just as you said, you, we showed up on, on time in Pentecost, and sure enough, we are following, even to our generation, the understanding that these words apply to us, that you knew us, you saw us before the creation of the universe. And we understand where we fit in in your divine plan and who we are in this new creation in Christ. So we thank you for the privilege and honor of being chosen for this and this tremendous calling that becomes a part of your eternal purpose. We thank you, Father, for this and we realize that we are in this dangerous world that is fallen Help us to keep our mind, our mindset, so that we don't lose focus and get confused and, and distracted in, in the things of this world. So we thank you for the answered prayers for uh, Christina and the Haddon family as well. We continue to pray for their healing and ask that uh, we would continue to be challenged as we continue we look at these things and meditate on them so that the spirit of truth can continue to show us who we are in Christ in this world it's in his name we pray amen amen amen